Sorry there. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sorry there, Steve. You were handing me the mic, and I don't know how to turn those on and off. I, I don't even know where to put it, but thanks. Uh, we do this morning have two special guests with us, Ron and Janine Wiley, and I'm guessing you're going to be on the right side because that's where you've always sat. Please stand up. Uh, they are missionaries of ours from, because they're missionaries of ours. And I know that they were here this morning to kind of talk to the Sunday school classes about what's going on, but if, if you got a minute, uh, I'd love to have you share something. And again, the mic. This might, okay, hello, hello. I don't know. But if you want to say something real quick, go ahead. I think yes. you're on. Um, it's so good to be with you all this morning. And over the last close to four years that we've been back in Central Asia, we've bounced back here several times, some of those times in the hospital and, and you know, locked down by the pandemic. And so we just haven't seen you much or you haven't seen us much over these last four years. But we are home for a few weeks and glad to be here. Just real quickly, we work, we live in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan. and we Uzbekistan. work in both Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan in Central Asia. And Janine and I have been with Resource Exchange International now for over 30 years, and our motto is building people to build nations. So we work as kingdom professionals. I'm a college professor. I work at two universities, one in each country, and teaching conflict resolution, international relations, and then we're also recruiting international faculty for our university in Uzbekistan. And um, we just are excited because we're, we've been put in a place to be able to invite workers for the harvest to join us in Samarkand. And for the first three years of our work in Central Asia for REI, it was just Janine and I having a regional staff meeting over breakfast every morning. But in 2023, we've already been joined in Samarkand by two of our oldest friends going back 40 years who've worked in Africa and Southeast Asia, and they've moved to, to Samarkand to be with us. In August, we have three single men coming to join our team. And in April, we had a, a retired PhD EPA scientist move to Kazakhstan. So Janine and, and Randy and I are a team in Kazakhstan, even while Janine and I are <laughs> living in Uzbekistan and on the team there. And so we go back and forth between the two countries. Um, but specifically, in December 2021, we were invited to Samarkand to help start the Samarkand International University of Technology. And after praying about it and asking others to pray for us, we concluded that the Lord was indeed sending us to Samarkand. And so we arrived there a year ago, March, spent several months moved to Samarkand in the summer last year and, and began recruiting others to come. We got back there again in February after I went through a health crisis last fall. And, and I've been teaching at the university as well as continuing to recruit. 
And as of this August, we will have, besides our teammates, eight of us on our team with REI, we're, we're going to have five more Jesus followers as professors at the university this fall. So God has been blessing mm. your prayers for labors for the harvest, and, and that's half of the faculty at our university this fall. So thank you for your prayers. Um, Janine just wanted to share a couple things about the ongoing work in Kazakhstan. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, you've been with us for a long time, uh, 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 supporting us in every, every possible way. But I just wanted to share with you the hope that it's, the gospel is spreading in Kazakhstan. And the main thing that motivated me to keep going when times were tough was I didn't want to just pour into the lives of the, the new believers that we were uh, finding and um, that were happening, <laughs> coming to faith uh, in Kazakhstan. I, my dream was that their kids would have children who were following Jesus. And we see that happening. So we've been in Kazakhstan, how many years now? 30 yeah. So the young uh, professionals, the college students uh, 30 years ago, now have kids who are at the, uh, getting married. Huh. And uh, soon there will be grandkids. And I have to say that uh, we're seeing the, that second generation following the Lord uh, really strongly. And we're really excited about going to a wedding in August. And uh, the young, young man, I asked him, what do you like about your bride-to-be? And he said, she's such a godly woman. Mm. And that just, uh, just made me so excited uh, my prayer is being answered that uh, the next generation is following the Lord. And so let's pray for the next generation after that. So, but thank you for your part in that all these years. Thank you. There have been ups and downs, not just our health, but there are challenges living and working in a place like Central Asia. And there was one point last summer when I, was, I had hit a low because the, we were running up against a brick wall. And the Lord encouraged me from Revelation 3 when Jesus said, I am the one who opens doors that no one can shut and closes doors that no one can open. And I was sharing that with someone in my network who's helping me recruit. And, and I said, so we know that the Lord opened this door and we're going to stay here in inviting other people to come through it. And he said, well, you must be Jesus' doorstop. <laughs> and I have claimed that, that we're there holding the door open for kingdom professionals, workers for the harvest, to come through and join us there in Samarkand. So would you pray with us that that door would remain open and that many workers for the harvest would
pass through it. Among our other prayers would be for a next generation of laborers. We've got three young men joining us in August, and we've got another couple that we just found out this morning has, has decided that they'll be joining us, and the husband's finishing his PhD in electrical and computer engineering, the wife's a social worker, and they would come and join us at the university. Pray for servant leadership to dominate the culture of the university. It's, that's not the kind of leadership we have right now. That's one of our biggest challenges. But I teach servant leadership to my students, and we would like to see that spread. And then finally, just again, give the Lord thanks for how he's guarded our lives and protected our health such that we could return time and time again <laughs> to Central Asia. And, and please, it's a spiritual battle, so be praying against the, the wiles of the enemy. And we send prayer updates out. If any of you would like to be added to the list who aren't on it, see me afterwards. I'll get your email address, and, and we'll get you on that list. Thank you so much. Hold on a second. Uh, whenever someone says, pray for this, you'll know if you've asked me, I stop right then and there, and we pray. So I'm going to ask Randy, Jake, and Ron to come up, some of the elders that are here this morning. And I'm going to ask Ron to simply pray for the spiritual battles that they fight and that God would watch over them as they head back to Uzbekistan. Thanks. Father, I thank you, we thank you uh, for these lives, uh, Ron and Janine. Their, yes, Lord. Their willingness to serve, their willingness to go into the battle. And the battle is, is fierce. And it's not against enemies that we can see and, and, and can confront that way, but you have provided for us uh, the armor that we need, your righteousness, faith, the gospel. God, these pieces of armor will protect us. They are your armor. And we just pray that... Uh, they could use that, feel that <coughs> armor on them and the protection that you provide. We pray for their work, pray for our success in their work. And we thank you, thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And I assume you'll be in the back to answer all sorts of questions like how to spell Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. And how to say it. And how to say it. I, I'll, I'll take a lesson. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, they make this print so small. There we go. Sorry, Kaya, if I mess that up. All right, so we are in the book of John. We're in the sixth chapter, and we're almost finished with the sixth chapter. Uh, the sixth chapter is 71 verses, so it is a lot to take on, even in the three weeks that we're looking at John chapter 6. But the whole message of the book of John is that Jesus the Messiah is the overcoming God King. That when it comes to what he says, what he does, and who he is by nature, he is the chosen one. He is the one that God appointed to take care of our sin. And he not just simply promises to take care of our sin, 
He, in actuality, does it, solves it, fixes it, and completely forgives it and makes us righteous in his sight so that the Father would look upon us and not see our faults, not see our troubles, not see our flaws, but he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is what Jesus is doing throughout the entirety of the book of John, showing us that he is the Messiah, the overcoming God King. And it is my goal by the end of our series through the book of John that every one of you would be able to stand up here and give that first two minutes of every sermon. I want you to hear it so often that you, that you are tempted to think, oh no, I know how Tim's going to start the sermon. I can go to sleep for two minutes and then I'll wake up and then we'll get on with the message. I want it to be so ingrained in your heart and in your mind and in your thoughts, you could stand up here and communicate that Jesus is the Messiah, the overcoming God King, and what that means for us today. I want that to be part of your thinking when you think of Jesus. I want to take us back to January 17th, 1991. January 17th, 1991. Now, I imagine there's a few of you that automatically go, Tim, I know exactly what happened on that day. And then a few of you, Tim, I wasn't even born in 1991. And some of you said, Tim, listen, that was so long ago. I'm just thankful that I can remember that there was a 1991. I get it. But on that date, the U.S. Army switched gears from Desert Shield to Desert Storm. And they unleashed what was called at that time the most modern expression of shock and awe. They went all in on that day to get Hussein out of power and to drive the Iraqis out of Kuwait, thus starting the Persian Gulf War and everything that attached to it for the next 20, 30 years. But that moment was mesmerizing on TV to see the rockets and the planes and the tanks and the troops just rush in and overwhelm the defending forces. They didn't have a chance. And it wasn't just our technology, it was our training and skill and planning that took place that made it all possible. But this phrase was used constantly, shock and awe, shock and awe that you got to go at your enemy with full force so that they don't even have a moment to think about how to react and respond because they're overwhelmed. Shock and awe. You unleash every heavy weapon you've got to overwhelm the enemy so that they have nothing to do but surrender. In a sense, we are going to see this morning in John chapter 6, and we're starting in verse 41, and we're going to go through verse 59. But in that section, Jesus unleashes shock and awe upon the enemy. And the enemy is not just the religious leaders of the day that were lording it over everyone and making rules and regulations that everyone had to obey, making themselves feel good and others feel rotten about themselves not giving a true account of who God is and what he said. So Jesus was not just attacking that, but he was attacking the person, the average Israelite who stood there and said, you know what, I'm fine because Abraham is my father. And as long as Abraham is my father and I am a Jew, I am totally fine. I do my little religious duties. 
sometimes half-heartedly, sometimes with no heart at all, but it doesn't matter because I am born and raised a Jew and I am Jewish, therefore I'm fine. And when Jesus comes along and sees that in the people, contrary to God, contrary to his message of being the Messiah, the overcoming God King, he has to address it. And he's been addressing it ever since he started his ministry when John the Baptist recognized here is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he has been addressing the fact that he is able to overcome that enemy of pride, that enemy of legalism, that enemy that distorts the character, nature, and word of God, and he does it with shock and awe this morning. Because from the beginning of John chapter 6, he's been addressing this. He's been addressing the fact that you need to believe in him in order to have eternal life. Don't believe in yourself. Don't believe in your good works. Don't believe in others. Believe in him and you shall be saved. But people were still looking to him for the miracle workers, for the bread, for the food, for the, for the, for the wonderment and amazement of the magical ability he seems to have for his charisma in talking to a crowd. They wanted more of the physical things that Christ was doing not the spiritual nature that challenged their own heart. And let's be honest, we can all identify with that Israelite because there is nothing more uncomfortable than having sin in your face and the sin is pointing at you. Your thoughts, your actions, your feelings, your hopes, your dreams, all being exposed as sin. And so the people were constantly at this disagreement with Jesus Christ about the revealing of sin. We're okay when Jesus reveals it in others. In fact, we make ourselves feel good when Jesus reveals it in others. But Jesus is revealing it to the hearts of the people that were following him. And they were not getting it. They were not getting it. They were still thinking in terms of, are you going to give us bread today? Hey, can you feed us all the time? always thinking, what do I get out of this? Instead of, how can I humbly submit myself to this Christ, this anointed one, this, this God in flesh? How can I humble myself and be right with the Father that sent him? So he's been trying. He's been presenting his case, and they are still confused they are still at odds, and they still want Jesus to be something different. So finally, he says, I'll tell you what. I will release the most shocking, awe-filled statement that you have to wrestle with. You have to deal with it, and I am letting it all on the line. And so he starts that in John chapter 6, starting in verse 41, and this section goes through verse 46, in which he says the following... So the Jews grumbled about him. Of course they did, because he wasn't going to feed them, and he's confusing them with the truth that he is the bread of life, because he had just mentioned that I am the bread of life in verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall never thirst, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. They're grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I come down from heaven? So their immediate argument is not 
Okay, I should say their immediate thought is not, we have seen this guy work miracles. We see him presenting truth that is confounding everyone. He really seems to have a connection with God. Maybe, just maybe, I need to obey and listen to him. But to do that means I have to submit to him. To do that means I'm going to have to ask forgiveness. To do that means I'm going to have to surrender my way of thinking how religion works and accept and only accept his path to the Father. I'm not going to be able to add my own stuff. I'm not going to be able to take from tradition. I'm not going to be able to take from whatever uh, latest poll is out there. I have to accept him and only him the way he presents himself. So instead of doing that, humbly submitting and believing, they have this argument in their mind, you know, this is getting a little personal. We know who Jesus is, the son of the carpenter, the guy from Nazareth, and nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It's only probably less than an hour away from where they're at right now to see a Galilee, so they know the area, they know the region. It's basically saying, ah, they're from the east side. Jesus is from the south side. Ah, we know who he is. How can he come from heaven, come down from heaven? That's impossible. It's also impossible to take a couple loaves and a couple fish and feed 20, 30,000 people. That's hard too. That's impossible. Guess what also is impossible? To walk on water, impossible. You know what else is impossible? To tell the storm to stop and it stops. You know what also is impossible? When you're in the middle of the lake, you step in the boat and immediately you're on the other side of the shore. Impossible things. You know what else is impossible? To tell someone who is a cripple to stand up and walk, and he does. You know what also is impossible? To tell someone that their grieving child who is dying is now alive and fine. And they are. You see, Jesus is in the business of doing what is impossible. So when he says, I've come down from heaven and I am the bread of life, if you eat of me and drink from me, you will never thirst, you will live forever. Maybe, just maybe, based on everything else that he's done and said, I need to give him the benefit of the doubt and submit and believe. But when you are pressed with sin, when you are pressed with challenging your status quo, your opinion, your way of doing things, your way of thinking, immediately you come up with lots of arguments why it's not true. And their argument is, we know who this guy, it can't be true. We know where he's raised, we know his father, we know what he did, we know where he's from, nothing. They have no other argument but to attack the guy himself. So Jesus, in verse 41, or excuse me, verse 43, answered them. So he's hearing everybody just grumbling and complaining, fussing and whining, and behind his back going, you know, impossible, can't be, can't be, whatever. And he says, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to the Father no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. I think what Jesus is doing at this very moment, not only correcting them from grumbling and complaining, and it's not even right 
grumbling and complaining. They are wrong about the nature of Christ. They are wrong about his history. They are wrong about who he is because he is the incarnate son of God who was born of the Virgin Mary through a miraculous conception and born and raised, yes, by Joseph and Mary in Nazareth, but he is so much more than just a carpenter's son. He is the Messiah, the overcoming God King. And he tells them with clarity and plainness that this relationship that you want to have with the Father comes from the Father. The Father starts the relationship, he nurtures the relationship, he establishes the relationship, and he sees the relationship all the way through. And in doing so, Jesus says, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That when you see the Father rightly, and God establishes that right understanding, the right faith, the right presence before him, when God establishes that in that individual, their eyes are open, the scales have fallen off, they're able to walk and breathe and see that Jesus Christ is indeed who he says he is because the Father works in that sinner's heart to bring life. And life that is true and abundant and real. And so Jesus' response to all this fussing about who is he really goes back to the Father. He says, the Father reveals to you who I am. And in the quietness of all your arguing, if you put all that aside and you look not just at the evidence, but you look at the eternal witness of God's word and the working of his spirit, you too will see you have a need. And the need is desperate salvation from sin and a life as an enemy of God. So Jesus, full force, tells them that he's the only one that rightly understands and represents God, the Father, to the people. Not the high priests, not the Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes, not all the religious leaders combined in Israel, but he can because he is God incarnate. He is the only one that has been face to face with God the Father in a spiritual sense. And so when he says, this is what the Father wants and this is what the Father does, and he has sent me to accomplish redemption and salvation and be an atonement for sin, you can take him at his word because he's getting it directly from the Father. And he is not like us that played that game telephone as a kid. Everybody remembers that game where you'd be in a circle and the teacher would say something to the first kid and all the way down the line, and by the time it got to the last person, it had nothing to do with what was said at the very beginning. Does everybody remember that game? I mean, okay, I'll admit, I might have been one of those that passed on something odd, but now that doesn't surprise you. You know that about me, that you could peg me as the kid who started it, because even if I was the first one, trust me, by the time I got to the second one, I was making something up, really weird and awkward. And then, of course, all my buddies and everybody just did the same, odd, awkward, and weird. But it was awesome. 
Jesus is not like us. He does not play the telephone game getting a message from God and then giving it to us and changing it. He reflects the character and nature and words of God perfectly. He is the only one that has come from the Father to dwell among us, or as the Old Testament say, to tabernacle with us, to be present with us. No one else has ever done it. No one has seen the Father as Christ has, and he is from, from his presence. Now, the next section builds upon this and starts to do the shock and awe. It says in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, and everybody knows what that means, right? Time to wake up. All eyes front. This is vitally essential and important. And what Jesus has to say here needs to be ingrained in our thoughts and mind and full attention on what Jesus says. And we all agree we should be doing that the entire time we read God's word. But even Jesus knows sometimes you have to wake people up and say something that gets their attention. So he's just done that. He's got your attention, and this is what he's going to say. Whoever believes has eternal life. All right, we've heard him say that before. Whoever believes has eternal life. Okay, I understand that. Then he says, I am the bread of life. Second time he said that. He said that in verse 35, and now he's saying it again in verse 48. I am the bread of life. He's connecting that with the miracle that he had just performed the day before or the evening, afternoon that he had just done before. And now he's presenting to them again this analogy of bread and sustenance and hope and, and filling your need and taking care of our need, which really is our sin, not our growling empty stomach, but our sin is the real need that God is addressing. It says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, going back to the days of Moses, taking the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land, and they died. So it begs the question, what good did the manna do? Did they live forever because of the manna? No, they didn't. Guess what? They ate, and they had to eat again the next day, and they had to eat again the next day, and that went on 40 years. And guess what happened the next day at 40 years in one day? They had to eat again in order to live. But Jesus is saying, if you eat of me, you will live forever and never hunger or thirst again. It's like the woman at the well earlier in John when he talks about, I'm the living water. If you asked of me, I could have given to you and you would never thirst again. And he's speaking spiritually. You would be satisfied. You would be at peace. You would have hope and joy. You would be fulfilled as a human being. You'd have your identity in Christ and she goes, hey, give me this water because I don't want to have to come here every day and draw water. It's a lot of work. And I'm sure he didn't smack his head and go, oh. But I can imagine in his mind, in his human heart and thinking, he was like, how can they not get it? How can they not understand something as simple as I'm giving them life? If they would turn from their sin to me, I would welcome them. It says, your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. He's talking about himself, the bread of life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
And obviously he's talking spiritually here, that they would not experience spiritual death. Because no matter how much you eat today, you're going to eat again. You're going to need to eat in order to live. That's how our bodies function. But Jesus says, if you come to me and eat of me spiritually, you will be satisfied and you will never need to eat again. You will never need to be spiritually right with God because I established that. All the rightness with God is based on me. So if you have me, you have the Father, and the relationship is secure and final and done and established and concrete and unmovable and eternal. It will never, ever end. It says in verse 51, to close this little section, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. God established from the very beginning, after Noah and his flood landed on Mount Ararat, or the mountains of Ararat, he established the sacrificial system that he gives Israel to follow so that Israel would understand a few things about their sin. One, sin is costly. Even the smallest little white lie is costly. So sin is costly. The sacrifices showed the costliness because you had to give a perfect sacrifice, an unblemished lamb or goat or cow. You had to give the first fruits, the very first bit of your harvest, you'd give to God. You wouldn't keep it for yourself and say, oh, I cannot wait to eat that first tomato or that first peach or that first apple off the tree. It had to go to God. So it was costly. It was also very bloody. When you atone for your sins, it cost the life of an innocent animal that your sin was transferred to. Uh, I've only seen a few times in my entire life an animal dying because of injury or hunting. <laughs> but there, there is a sound that some animals make that is just, it's screeching. It's just horrifically impressed in your mind. And on the Day of Atonement, the days of Passover, the days of major celebrations and festivals in Jerusalem, I've told you before, there are historical accounts, not even in Scripture, but in history that was written at the time, where the blood coming from the Temple Mount could be so thick and deep that it could go up to your ankles or knees as you're walking down the street around the temple. So the sacrifices remind us not only of the costliness, not only of the blood, but of how gross sin is, how utterly disgusting it is 
for it to be solved and fixed. And all the time, God had in his mind and revealed it to us, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, at the beginning of Scripture. The goal is not animals suffering for sin, but the goal is I will send someone to crush and defeat the serpent. And what he was talking about was his son, Jesus. And time and time again, even when God established the covenant with Abraham, God was very clear to Abraham, I want you to have this costly, bloody, ugly, gross sacrifice. I want you to give me your son. Abraham follows through with faith to do just about that. And as the knife was coming down, God said, stop, I'm giving you a substitute. The whole point was to show us that God provides the substitute. And Jesus is that substitute. He is the one that will spill his own blood. He is the one that will give up his own life. He is the one that will make us right with the Father. Only him and only by his means and only by his act. You cannot add anything to it. Impossible. He continues on in verse 52 through the following of uh, this section, verse 59. You can imagine what the Jews say next. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? He's asking us to be cannibals? See, they're still thinking this is all physical. Everything he's talking about is physical. The bread is physical, the water is physical, and even his flesh he's talking about physically partaking in cannibalism, which Scripture forbids the eating of blood. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, again, a moment of wake up. This is a moment where you have to really pay attention to the clarity of what Jesus is going to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Talk about shock and awe. He knows what they're fussing about. Instead of going and saying, okay, let me clarify myself. I don't really mean what you think I mean. He goes full force and says, I'm going to push them to the very edge of their comfort zone, and I'm going to overwhelm them with exactly what I'm going to do in their lives. And so he says, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread your fathers ate and died. He's not talking about physical sustenance. He's talking about a spiritual connection with who Christ is, what Christ did, his body, his blood, and us. Whoever feeds on this bread, he's talking about himself, will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And there are two things that we can see related scriptures that I believe give us great clarity here. The first is in Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, 
who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, Paul understands what all of this feeding talk is about. It is about I've been crucified with Christ. It's not about me. Christ lives, and the life that I now live in the body, in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He says something very similar in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. It tells us to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Paul connects the Old Testament sacrifices with what Christ did on the cross. He died and gave his flesh, his blood, his life, his humanity as a substitute for our humanity, as a substitute for my flesh, my blood, my life. Christ gave himself a substitute. And the only way he can get this through the thick heads of sinners is to shock and awe them. If you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have nothing to do with the Father. Hard words, challenging words, words easier to understand because we have the whole counsel of God directing us to what it means, but I know challenging to the people that were with him to the point, as we'll see next week, some of the peoples heard this, some of the disciples understood this, and they said, who can stay here and listen to this. Their hearts were so hard against God. Jesus imparts and sustains real life. To eat of the bread of life is to accept, to seize, and to assimilate his work on the cross for your own. It is to take his life and substitute it with your life. You give up your life Jesus gives up his life, and he gives you true life in return. And the only way to have that as your own is to believe in him, to accept this shock and awe that it overwhelms your sense of right and wrong, that it overwhelms your sense of pride, that it overwhelms your sense of guilt, that it overrides your sense of entitlement, that it overrides your sense of rules and regulations. It needs to overrule your heart. Do you see that Jesus wants to overrule your way of thinking and replace it with his? Because he knows that's the only way to get to the Father. When you replace your good works, your entitlement, your sense of pride, and you surrender it, and you accept only him completely to the point as if you are taking his flesh and making it yours. It is the only way to be right with God. Let's pray. Father, it is hard even this side of the story of your son to accept some of these hard sayings, but we know you're doing it to bring us to a point where we are humble before your throne. And as we sing and worship you in this last song, Father, please help us to surrender our sense of self to you. Because, Father, we want to exhibit love as Christ loved us. We want to exhibit forgiveness like you have forgiven us. And, Father, we want to surrender every sense of pride and entitlement and rule following before your throne that we might have life 
and life everlasting. And all of God's people said, Amen.